you have a Bible, would you open up to Mark chapter 3 as we continue our study in Mark's gospel? If you need to use one of our pew Bibles, it's going to be page 838, Mark chapter 3 or page 838 in the pew Bible. When you find it, would you stand with me as we read God's Word? Beginning in verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God, and he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him, and he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, and Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon, the Canaanian, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. And he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. When his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind, verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they had said, he has an unclean spirit. Verse 31, and his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him, and a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So... Upon reading this passage, you just kind of have to ask, what in the world do we have here? I mean, at first glance, it seems like our passage is an odd patchwork of stories that Mark is hastily stitching together before he has to get his manuscript into the publisher, and he's trying to fit some kind of word count. I'll just throw this story in there, I'll throw this story in there, and that'll fill it out. It's one of those kinds of passages of Scripture where you look at it as a preacher and you wish you could kind of just jump right over it, you know? I mean, it, on the one hand, there's this, this summary statement about what Jesus is doing, and then we have a few verses about His 12 disciples. Uh, we, then we switch to His family thinking He's nuts, the leaders of the day basically calling Him Satan. Then Jesus says something about an unforgivable sin. Then it closes with Jesus ignoring His family and saying something very hippie-like to the people just sitting around Him, right? 
you look at this and you go, what? Unsubscribe. Can I just move on to the next thing here, right? How do you make sense of this? But if we, we trace the flow of Mark's gospel up to this point, our passage makes a lot of sense. You think about chapter 1, where, where it announces the kingdom of God and the effects that it has upon the world, and Jesus' clear call for the world to repent and believe in the gospel message. In chapter 2, up through the beginning of chapter 3 that we looked at last week, Mark reveals the authority of Jesus, which is again an effect of the kingdom of God. And this authority, this theme of authority, will carry throughout the remainder of the gospel. Now, Mark tends to shift the focus and writes about the people of this kingdom. In other words, Mark is really still just unpacking what Jesus said in chapter 1 and verse 15 when he said, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. It's no wonder that Jesus has all this authority. He is the king after all. Repent and believe, that's exactly what chapter 3 verses 7 to 35 is about. It is unpacking and describing the people who respond to this gospel message, the people who are described as the people of God. And it's actually not what you would think. And as you'll see in a moment, it's, it's actually really pretty offensive to us, but it shouldn't be surprising because it was also very offensive to Jesus' first hearers as well. So let's kind of see how Mark continues to unpack this amazing narrative, this amazing story of Jesus Christ. We look at it first with these six verses in verses 7 through 12, which really serve as kind of a summary statement from Mark about how Jesus' ministry is doing. In effect, this is a transition from a very important and actually very ironic conclusion that Jordan taught us through last week in verse 6 of chapter 3. Remember how it ended? It ended this way. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against Jesus how to destroy him. Now, understandably, friends, the partnership between the Pharisees and Herodians doesn't mean much to us, right? I mean, so what? So let me update the statement a little bit. This is what it would be like. The Republicans went out and immediately held counsel with the Democrats, and they all agreed. That would be the impact here. Are you kidding me, Mark? That actually happened. That never happens. This is insane. When I mean, think about the Pharisees. Now, here's the thing. If, if you're familiar with... If, if you think Pharisees are bad guys, like, yeah, those are the ones we always got, that Jesus always put them in their place, you've been shaped and molded by 2,000 years of Christian history. Now, ultimately, we know they were the bad guys. They missed it entirely. But we always have to go back to the original audience. To the original audience, the Pharisees were the good guys. They were the ones that took Torah really seriously. They were the ones that guarded the law so that the Jewish nation would never sin against God and get dragged off to exile again. So you're looking to the Pharisees and going, right on, you guys are keeping us good with God, right? The Herodians, on the other hand, as their name implies, are Jews who are in cahoots with Herod. That's why they're called Herodians, the Roman government, the very government that's oppressing the people of God. So you had these conservative Jews and these, these Jews who are partnering with their enemy and they're working together. This is insanity because they're at cross purposes all the time. But when it came to Jesus, they were working together. This is a big deal that the Pharisees and the Herodians take counsel together. And Mark says, meanwhile, back on the ranch, Jesus withdrew with his disciples. 
Okay, you guys, you guys, I know I grew up with Louis L'Amour books from my dad, so that's a Western show, right? But that, that you got that idea, that's the narrative flow here, that Mark says something astounding, and he says, meanwhile, this is happening with Jesus. Well, what's happening with Jesus? He withdraws to the hills. And so, with this summary statement that we have here in verses 7 to 12, Mark is trying to accomplish two major things, but he does it really quickly, and if you just read past it, you miss it. And he makes these two points in, in all ways by mentioning, of all ways to do it, mentioning cities and towns. Did you see that list in verses 7 through 9? Right there it was. Great crowds from Galilee and Judea, Jerusalem and Idumea, beyond the Jordan and Tyre and Sidon. So Mark is making two points by just listing this, this, this grouping of cities. Number one, if you have a Bible with maps in the back, and you just kind of look up these city names, these villages' names, you'll notice that Mark is covering three of the four compass points, north, south, and east here. And and what he's saying is that some of these people are actually, by listing them, they're coming from 125 miles away. Now, when your most main mode of transportation is you're hoofing it around on your feet, that's a a six-and-a-half-day journey just to get to Jesus. So Mark is saying they're coming from every geographical area, and they're coming from a long distance to be with Jesus, to hear Him, to maybe even just, maybe just touch Him. Now contrast this with what Mark taught us about John the Baptist in chapter 1, verse 5. Remember, Mark, he's the author. He's writing a story. He's taken us someplace. Notice he, he talks about John, that his fame, that people from Judea and Jerusalem were coming to him. So what Mark is doing is saying, look, John the Baptist, his ministry, people from Judea and Jerusalem were coming to him, but when he comes to Jesus, people from Idumea and Tyre and Sidon. So in other words, John, he had a pull from maybe Mission Viejo and Laguna Hills, but Jesus, they were coming from Camp Pendleton, from Brea, Riverside, as far as Barstow, right? That's what he's saying. The expanse is reaching. And this is exactly what John said, didn't he? Chapter 1, verse 7, John said, there's coming one who's mightier than I, and Mark is putting a literary device saying, see, it's happening. Jesus' impact and his reach far exceeds John the Baptist. The second kind of thing Mark is teaching us through just this listing of names, and probably more to the point of what he's actually trying to communicate in chapter 3, is that the listing of these areas refer, if you've got that map, if you look at it, it refers to the geographical regions that Israel and the descendants of the 12 tribes occupied. In other words, where God had given the people, His people, the land, Mark is describing, they're coming from all of the areas that were given to the 12 tribes of Israel. In other words, the people of God, it's not just people from all over the compass points coming from long distances, but the 12 tribes of Israel, they're now gathering around Jesus Christ, which makes the next section, the next seven verses, verses 13 and 19, really significant where Jesus starts selecting His 12 disciples. By the way, it's not a coincidence that in the Old Testament, there are 12 tribes of Israel, and in the New Testament, Jesus has 12 disciples. That's not a coincidence. That's very deliberate as our next point we'll see. We see in verses 13 and 19, the calling of the 12, the creation of a new people. So let let me set this up. The Bible has been clear from the very beginning that God had a distinct purpose for the people, for His people. They had a distinct purpose to the wider world around them. 
They, they weren't just there for their own benefit, but they served a purpose. When the Jews of the Old Testament were gathered together at the Mount of Sinai and were constituted as a nation, God gave them a charge. And he said to them in Exodus chapter 19, verse 6, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So what do priests do? They mediate between the people and the deity, right? Notice in the New Testament, when Peter's writing to Christians, the disciples of Christ, he quotes the exact same passage and applies it now to New Testament Christians. He says in 1 Peter 2, 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. In other words, friends, In other words, whatever role Israel played and served in the Old Testament, Jesus' disciples serve in the New Testament period. This is what Mark is alluding to in these few verses here. It's not a coincidence that he lists all the geographical regions that the 12 tribes of Israel occupied and immediately follows that up with Jesus making 12 disciples. Mark's trying to imply a radical new thing is happening. God is making a new people for himself. It's built for sure on the foundation of what he had done before and his purposes of election and redemption, but he's doing something radically new through his son, Jesus Christ. And notice what we read in Mark 3, 14, what Jesus has these 12 disciples do. So it says there, 14, 15, he called them, he desired, he called to him those who been desired so that they could be with him. And by the way, do you remember our series on discipleship back in January? You're going to see the same elements. To be with Jesus. This is a relationship, right? We are not just out there talking about just information, right? We are talking about a living relationship we can have with the living God. But it's not just that, it also includes proposition. So just like Jesus called the disciples to be with him and to preach the gospel, the same applies for us as well. Now, you don't preach the gospel the way I do. You think of preaching, you might be thinking of this, but you are preaching the gospel. Maybe it's to the coworker in the cubicle next to you. Maybe it's to your friend in the hallway before class, between classes. We are preaching the gospel. Friends, the 12 disciples were not the example, or excuse me, not the exception. They were the example of what this new people of God were going to be like. And so Mark says, Jesus called them to be with him, to be in relationship, but also to proclaim, to preach the gospel, to talk about the saving works of God in Christ, that they are to actually give a proposition to the world. And then third and finally, what I write, stand against the darkness. There is a certain lifestyle they're going to lead. And in the context of Mark, it says to to the authority to cast out demons, because that was seen as the most significant stand against the darkness. But in extrapolating the 12 disciples as the example for us, what we do is we're in a relationship with God. But it's not just a relationship. There's a proposition. We have to communicate something. It's not just me and Jesus at Starbucks. I get to do my own thing. There is a purpose to that relationship, and that's to proclaim the saving works of God. But it's not just relationship and words. There's a way we live that's going to be markedly different. So you take vacation time, your, your precious two weeks, you'll take half of that so you can go swing a hammer for people who don't even know you, he may not even be grateful, but you do that because it's some way that you're going to make a proclamation of the loving, the saving acts of God in Christ, right? We live differently. And so Jesus is forming this group of, of disciples around him, and Mark is packing all this in in just these few short verses. Now, if you've been a Christian and you've been at church for, I mean, just maybe not even a year, none of this is new to you, right? 
This all makes sense. You, you haven't heard anything new. It's, yeah, this is kind of what Christianity teaches, something, something, Jesus, something, something, gospel, something, something, be better, right? But here's the kicker that most people don't realize. And I think Mark is trying to get that. He's not, he's not hammering it home because he's writing a narrative, but it's all throughout the gospel. Here's the kicker. And the kicker is this. You don't get to decide to be a disciple of Jesus. Jesus decides that. Let me say that again. You don't get to decide to be a disciple of Jesus. That's Jesus' choice. And in a moment, we're going to see in this narrative that there were people in his life that felt that they had rights toward Jesus. For whatever reason, they felt that Jesus had an obligation to them, that there was something that was owed to them by Jesus, that somehow they and Jesus are on an equal playing field, and they equally, equally make demands of one another. And Jesus, through Mark's writing, is turning that on its head. Friend, I wonder how many of us in the modern church are making that mistake today, right? Now, now, granted, we would never say something like, yeah, Jesus is lucky to have me on his team, right? Or, yeah, I'm just throwing God a bone because I showed up on a Sunday morning. What, What else do you want, right? We may not say that with our lips, but we may be professing this with the way we live our lives, that we've taken Jesus for granted. We just assume because he's Jesus, he's always going to be there for me, and, and I don't have to be faithful because it says he'll always be faithful even if I'm faithless, and we just assume that he, his sole purpose is to exist for our pleasure. And Mark, right here on the very front end of his gospel, wants to remind us that's not how this works. See, in chapter 3, verse 13, this, this brief little, he calls whom he desires And just in case we or the apostles have forgotten that, Jesus just comes out and says it in John 15, 16. Wait a minute. You think you chose me? Mm -mm, Mm-mm, mm-mm. I chose you. You did not choose me. And and I know this, this can be a game changer because, friends, in our culture, it's likely you've heard your whole life that when it comes to Jesus and Christianity, it's about you deciding for him as if he was kind of groveling at the door waiting for you to finally come to your senses. And he says, oh, thank you because I, I so need you. And you don't realize that we've got it completely backwards. If we would for a moment take off kind of our our man-centered lenses or our individual lenses and we would read the Gospels, we'd recognize we got this thing totally backwards. We don't say yes to Jesus until Jesus has first said yes to us. I mean, friends, he literally walks on water. What impressive thing are you bringing to this relationship, right? I mean, when you think, how have we gotten to a point where we think God needs us and we have forgotten that it's we who desperately need Him? I mean, we're kind of, we're looking at His profile and we say, ah, well, let's see, Jesus, He walks on water, gives sight to the blind, feeds the hungry, clothes the naked, shelters the poor. Yes, I'll swipe right on this guy, not bad. I mean, what in the world? But that's what we think about when we think about God, and that's how this relationship works. Now, if we can get over the offense that God is not as democratic as we would like Him to be when He chooses His people, you'll come to realize you really want God making the choice. Because notice who He chooses in verses 16 to 19. Now, that's a list of the 12 disciples, and many of you are familiar with those. But what you need to realize, this this is a list of the unqualified. There is nothing about these 12 men that any one of us would have looked at and said, yeah, you're the kind of guy that I want to start a multinational corporation with right here. Yeah, you're the guy. 
They are the unqualified. There's none of them from the aristocracy. They're all just guys who are, they're, they're, they're just fishermen hanging out. They're just doing their job. They're just regular, average Joes like you and I. They're not qualified for the task God's called, to them, called them to. And secondly, they're unworthy. So they're unqualified and they're unworthy. You see in the list, Matthew. Remember Jordan talked last week that Matthew was a tax collector? A tax collector. I mean, you think you don't like the IRS. In their time, if you were a tax collector, you were an outcast from your society, a disgrace to your family because you were a traitor to the nation. You made your living off of grinding your brothers and sisters, your brother and sister Jews, into the dust so you can make money off of them. So this is a list of the unqualified, a list of the unworthy, a list of the unfit. You see Simon the zealot. And here's the great thing. The zealots uh, comes from the word zeal, obviously. They aggressively and in physical uh, assault and aggravation would try to overthrow Rome. They weren't patient. They weren't willing to wait on God. They wanted to take things into their own hands. And the great thing is, Jesus called both of these guys. Can you imagine, right, Simon and, and Matthew hanging out together, the tax collector and the zealot, probably at every moment wanting to uh, get at each other's throats. And then another name that pops out, Judas Iscariot, Right? I mean, we, we, again, remember, we know, we have 2,000 years, we know who Judas is. Back then, they probably would have known, but imagine the shock that Jesus would choose the one who would betray him. Friends, the point is, God chooses the unfit, the unqualified, the unworthy, and he'll even use our liabilities to accomplish his purposes. We will often always choose the beautiful, the young, the smart, the strong, the healthy. And God actually says, no, those, those, those I don't need because those people are full on their own pride. And by the way, I gave them their beauty. I gave them their health. I gave them their strength. I gave them their youth, and I can take it away. Jeremiah the prophet said, hey, let the rich man not boast in his riches. Let the wise man not boast in his wisdom. Let the mighty man not boast in his might, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. For just think about how radical that statement is, right? How many times have you heard people in the world around you say things like, well, we can't really know God, right? It sounds pious, but they say, well, we can't know God because he's God after all. Well, Jeremiah the prophet says, God says, yeah, you, but you can boast that you know me and you understand me. And he chooses not on the metrics that we would choose. He chooses the unqualified, the unfit, and unworthy, and that's us. Now, the point up to now in our passage is that God is doing as he's always done. He is creating a people for himself by his sovereign purposes for his supreme pleasure those he will choose to be his disciples. And for those who cho get chosen to be his disciples, it is for their ultimate good, and it changes the dynamic of the relationship. And I think that's one of the driving points of our final section in our passage this morning, verses 20 to 35. In, in effect, everything I've said up to now is to help us actually interpret this section that just seems kind of discombobulated and difficult we had to understand a couple things. Number one, that God is doing something radically new in Christ, built on the foundation of His plans of election and redemption from the Old Testament, but radically different, radically new. It is a new humanity, a new people, and it's not one based on um, ethnic privilege, like so they're not going to be Jews anymore, exclusively Jews. It's not one based on family ties or human accomplishments or status or achievement. It's going to be based solely on God's 
sovereign choice. And so Mark is really trying to ram that that point home because then we're going to see something very shocking in this last section, verses 20 to 35. Um, And admittedly, um, somebody said first hour, like, man, these are like weird subtitle headings. Meanwhile, back at the ranch and family, 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 but uh, what can I say, right? That's what's in the text. This last section, we actually see three families. Did you notice that? Verse 21, we see the biological family of Jesus. Verse 22, we get introduced to the ethnic national family of Jesus. And then finally, in verse 35, Jesus talks about this entirely new family. So we have these three families here in this last section. And what I want you to notice is what Mark is doing right on the heels of verses 13 to 19, where he's describing that that the kingdom of God is here, repent and believe, and Jesus is doing this radical new thing, creating a new people, a new humanity. There's a very important lesson that needs to be established. And what we're seeing next illustrates that. Unlike the first two families we're introduced to in verses 20 to 22, who believe for whatever reason that they have a claim upon Jesus, his new family understands in verse 35, it is Jesus that has a claim on them. Right? So, so the contrast is stark. Unlike his two other families who think they have a claim on Jesus, they can tell him what he needs to do. Jesus' real family understands, no, 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 we don't have a claim on him. He's got a claim on us, and that's what we see playing out here. So in verse 21, we see his biological family, this first family, they want to stop Jesus. That's what the word sees. You see that in verse 21? That's what sees means. They want to stop him. They want to capture him. They want to possess him. They want to halt what he's doing because they think he's mad. And I don't want to paint them in a horrible light, but you can understand that, couldn't you? that Mary is a part of this. Mary is thinking, Jesus, you were supposed to be the one that delivered us from Rome. You were supposed to be our deliverer, and all you've been doing, you, you haven't done anything. You're 30 now, and you're just wandering around you know, teaching and gathering these, these guys as your disciples. Are you out of your mind? Do you forget what calling God had on your life? Imagine, she could probably feel a little bit like her son, with all this great expectation, is not pulling through, and, 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 and he's even worse than they thought he was going to be. And so, they're trying to stop him. The second family in verse 22, the religious leaders, they intend, uh, intend to do the same. They want to stop Jesus because he thinks he's possessed, or they think he's possessed, right? So, the first family want to possess Jesus. The second family thinks he's already possessed, but both of them want to stop him. That's what's going on here. Now, what is Jesus doing that they're trying to stop? Mark 1, 15, the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus is making real the kingdom of God. Everything we've read so far in Mark's gospel, he's making the impact of the kingdom real, and he's calling people and to help them understand what does repentance and belief look like? What does repentance and faith look like? They're trying to stop that. And so Jesus responds to them in verses 23 to 29. We've already read it, so I won't read the whole thing, but I do want to jump in. Look at verse 23, the second half of it. How can Satan cast out Satan, Jesus asks. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. So he's saying, friends, your arguments themselves are incoherent. It doesn't make even sense what you guys are talking about. Do you even hear what's coming out of your mouth? 
And but let me read to you this very important verse, verse 27, as Jesus continues, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. Notice, very important, that, that what the, scri- the scribes did not disagree that Jesus was casting out demons. You see that in verse 22. The scribes acknowledge that Jesus is in fact doing these amazing things. They're not opposing him based on the amazing things he's doing. They're just attributing it to the wrong source. What Jesus is saying here in his response is that in order for him to be doing the things he's doing, the strong man, i.e. the devil himself, must be bound before his goods can be plundered. And Jesus is saying, you see me plundering his goods. You're not disagreeing with that. You see me doing this. You see me casting out demons, therefore it should follow that the strong man has been bound, that I have bound the strong man. Here's the connecting point. These families, whether it's his biological family or his his national family, they're seeking to bind Jesus. They're seeking to stop Jesus. Jesus is the one who binds. Jesus is the one who binds the strong man. No one binds him. And they have got the cart before the horse. They've got it all backwards. You think you can seize me? You think you can possess me? You think you can bind me? Will you not realize I'm the one that binds the strong man? What makes you think you can stop me? That's the point of Jesus' parable. And then comes this this huge indictment in verse 28 and 30 about the unforgivable sin, right? It's just all of a sudden, bam, this unforgivable sin. I'm not going to talk about that this morning because I I have eight minutes left. And, And that's a whole sermon unto itself, right? But let me just say, and and I will talk about at the end of our our first section in May, we have a free Sunday, we'll talk about what the unforgivable sin is from this passage. Let me just say this, it is not a particular act of sinning, like calling Jesus crazy or ascribing uh, his work to what the enemy's doing, like in in our passage here. It's not a particular sin, it's rather a kind of sinning that's the problem. So the unforgivable sin is not a particular act. So it's not like you're just, you know, walk doing your own thing and all of a sudden you walk into a booby trap. Like, oh, that was the unforgivable sin. I am hosed now, right? That's not what that is. It is a kind of sinning that someone participates in. And we'll unpack that in May. Let, Let me just say this. If you are reading this, maybe you read that and go, man, what if I committed that sin? If you fear that you have somehow offended the holiness of God and you are beyond his reach and you are truly regretting that and repentant of that, that is evidence you have not committed the unforgivable sin. Enough said on that, but we'll get back into that in May. Now, here's the question though. Why does Mark link his family's accusations with the scribes' accusations because in the parallel passages in Matthew 12 and Luke 11 that both describe the same scene, Matthew and Mark don't include his family in it. So this is the great thing about reading the Bible. Whenever you read the Bible, especially the Gospels, you've got these complementary perspectives. We talked about this early on. That each writer's bringing a certain narrative and they want us to understand certain things. So whenever we see differences, the question isn't, because any of you guys who are writers and, you know, ladies, you know this, how this works, right? When you see discrepancies, the question isn't, ah, I see the Bible's not right because there's discrepancies. Anybody who studies literature knows the question you're asking is, okay, what's the, the narrative arc that this author's trying to communicate that explains the discrepancy, right? 
So why did Mark include this? And I think it's very important to Mark's point on discipleship. And because I want to get it right, I'm going to quote somebody else. And this is uh, Dr. Edwards. He's a New Testament scholar in his commentary on Mark. He says this, and it's a, it's a, it's a frightening, but I think he's right on reality. He writes this, the attempt to restrain Jesus from his mission or redirect him to another course, even though it comes from his most intimate relationships, nay, even from his mother and brothers, is ultimately as mistaken and as blasphemous as confusing Jesus with Satan. Wow. I think what Mark is trying to say, look, if you're going to understand what it is to be a disciple of Christ, you need to be very clear on who calls the shots. Do you have expectations on this man? Are you trying to bind him in some way, redirect the course that he's trying to work, obviously, in the purposes God's given him, but the purposes he has in your life? Are you trying to get him to do what you want him to do? Well, according to Mark, that's as mistaken and as blasphemous as attributing Jesus' to be Satan. How many of us are saying, yeah, Jesus, I like you, but I'd rather you be doing this in my life? Can't be doing that, Mark says. If you're going to be this new creation... You don't have a claim on Jesus. Jesus has a claim on you. And to drive the point home, this is what Mark writes in verse 32 and 33. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother, your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my my mother and my brothers? Are they the ones who seek to bind me? Are they the ones that have a demand upon me? Are they the ones that have expectations that I have to somehow fulfill for them? Verse 34, and looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Friends, what does it mean to be the people of God? Does it mean that we chose Jesus and expect him to deliver the goods we want him to deliver, like material comfort, easygoing relationships, conflict-free life? because that's what it seems like he's supposed to do? Or does it mean we recognize what he's supposed to do and we want with all our hearts to be a part of that work? In short, do you have demands upon Jesus or does Jesus have a demand upon you? Do you have some kind of list of expectations that Jesus must fulfill in order for you to follow him? At what point does Jesus have to fail you before you'll walk away from him? See, this is what Mark is getting us to wrestle with. And you know that you've been chosen by Jesus. You're part of this new work, this new humanity, this new creation. When you stop expecting from him because you've become so satisfied and just sitting and learning from him. And, and one way we do that is that we, we recognize who He truly is rather than trying to make Him who we want Him to be. That He is, in fact, the one who walks on water, right? He is the one that gives sight to the blind, that He feeds the hungry, that He clothes the naked, that He shelters the poor. But more to the point, it happens in our hearts when we realize we were the ones that were blind and now He is helping us see that we were the ones that are hungry and he feeds us with the bread that comes from heaven, that we are naked and we are clothed in his righteousness, that we are poor, but we were made rich in Christ. We're going to conclude with a song, uh, In Christ Alone. 
And, and, and what I want to encourage you, if you are feeling like, man, maybe, maybe I think it's about me choosing him. I've had expectations of him, and I realize I've gotten that backwards. I want to encourage you, don't just sing this song, but pray it. Make it the anthem of your heart. Because you want to be a part of what he's doing. You don't want to continue to fight him to make him a part of what you want him to be doing. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and... Thank you for Mark and convicting us. Father, would you forgive us for placing expectations on your son, demanding that he fit some kind of um, wish list that we have, trying to conform him to shape the desires we have rather than we conforming to his desires. Father, it is all around us in our culture that it's about us We thank you that your word graciously and powerfully is reminding us it is not about us, but it is about you. It is about Christ. Spirit, would you be so gracious and kind as to bring conviction of our sin and our failure to our conscience so that we may also recognize the grace and mercy that is given to us. Father, may we repent and believe in the gospel in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.